My topic today is Israel, the third temple, and the return of Christ. And just to introduce the subject, I'm going to read three statements from three witnesses that may seem unrelated, but it will fit in, and then we will look at history. We will look especially, the key word in this is the third temple. The first witness is the apostle Paul. Acts 17, verse 24 says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Notice it doesn't say that God doesn't live in a temple. Not at all. It says God doesn't live in a temple made with human hands. Then the second witness I bring to this is Stephen on the day he was stoned to death. He preached a message and he said, Acts 17 verse 48, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Often the word house and temple are used interchangeably in scripture as many of you know. The third witness I bring to bear is Simon Peter. I will later also bring in Jesus Christ, but for now, Simon Peter is my third witness. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5, which Simon Peter himself says, if you would read the context, that he is interpreting Isaiah's prophecy here, uh, he, which was given 700 years earlier. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house or temple for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So those are just some introductory thoughts. Now, I want to start talking about the dream of a third temple to be built in Jerusalem. Now, I have a picture of what the Temple Mount in Jerusalem looks like today. And if you look at that picture, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the most disputed piece of real estate anywhere in the world, although there are with other religions Temple Mounts also uh, that, are, that are disputed. But this entire area is man-made. It is the world's largest man-made platform. It is almost 140 acres in size. That would be approximately 24 football fields. There's an enormous area there. And if you've ever been up there, you know that you see on a picture, you don't get the full appreciation for what's there. I can just show you that this, if you would go up to the top here, you would get to the Mount of Olives, and you can see here what's on the right, the structure that's called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, on the center with the gold dome, that is the Dome of the Rock, also a mosque, and just over in the very corner to my left, you see a structure right over there, that is, or a little bit there, that is where the Eastern Gate is, which is completely closed off. Uh, for reasons, uh, uh, political reasons and others. And so that's what it looks like today. Now let me talk about, obviously you didn't see a Jewish temple there. Now let me talk about the temple. On that great man-made foundation, it was not as large originally because it was expanded uh, later on, but that's where the first temple was built. And if you study Jewish history, they refer to the first temple period, which started about 968 before Christ, and ended 587 before Christ. So it lasted, would that be almost 400 years until Nebuchadnezzar came and brought destruction to the temple, the Babylonian king. Now, that temple that was built was to replace the tabernacle. You remember when Israel came out of Egypt, God told them to build a tabernacle, and God gave them wealth to be able to build the tabernacle. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? It was the place where God's presence dwelt. It was the place where uh, people would receive forgiveness from sin through sacrifices of animals. And thirdly, it was a place where people would go to receive direction and blessing from the priest on behalf of God. And now the temple took on that, uh, that place. And so that was the purpose. So then there was the Babylonian invasion. And you remember then Daniel... Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of them in different, they were a little bit, almost the same time, but a little different. They were talking about the rebuilding of the temple. And so the temple was rebuilt, and it started about 520 B.C. Interesting, 520, 517, 
And as Daniel says in his book, that he read the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had indicated it would be 70 years between the people going into captivity and coming back again. And so that's called the second temple period, uh, starting around uh, 520. But it wasn't all built. You know, they started to build. You remember the book of Nehemiah? And then they kind of quit kind of early, and they had a lot of opposition. So there was a lot of prophesying and encouraging and, and so on and so forth and to get going. And so... Uh, it was actually a little bit later on, uh, 457, so some 70 years after that, that it really got going with the permission of the Persian king. And so uh, they, they built the temple there. And then, uh, then what happened? In 70 AD, 70 uh, after Christ, uh, as was predicted by Old Testament scriptures and by Jesus and also by the book of Hebrews, the temple was destroyed. So this is what we believe the Jewish temple looked like. We're pretty accurate about this. This was the temple when Jesus was walking. That was destroyed in 70 AD. We'll get into more to that by, by the Romans. And so uh, that, that was a terrible thing. And it was predicted also in the book of Hebrews. So if you look at book of Hebrews written about 64 AD, Hebrews 8, 13, it says, By calling this covenant, referring to the new covenant of the gospel, new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Because you can see in the minds of the Jewish believers, they had received the gospel, and they had been told that Jesus is now the fulfillment of all the sacrifices, that God now lives in a temple made by human hands. So the Jewish believers naturally were thinking, well, why is the temple still there? Why is our temple still there? We keep preaching that it's over, the old covenant is over, and it's still right there. It's still right there. So, why? so then there was a time of apostasy that hit in the, in the mid-60s after Christ in Jerusalem, where many people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah actually were departing from the faith. If you study, I'm giving you a lot of information. You can check this out. There were three major players. One was uh, Eliezer ben Simon, uh, John of Gishkala, and uh, Simon bar -Giora. Forget those, but those are three very prominent people in Jewish history. And they were causing quite a stir, and uh, they even were perceived as being messianic figures. And so people were saying, hey, maybe this Jesus thing wasn't really uh, the thing. You know, maybe he's not the one. Maybe it's somebody else. So the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to explain this. And then this verse came here that that which is obsolete, the, the old covenant, it will soon disappear. So hold on. This is a prophecy. Soon it will be gone. Because to them it looked like it's never going to be gone. And so then what happens in history, I'm just give a little history lesson. In the year 66, uh, Judean rebels, being led by these three people that I spoke of, who inwardly were fighting one another. You know, if they could keep peace between themselves, they may have defeated the Romans. They had all kinds of history, how they burned one another's food and killing one another. But these three different ones, competing factions for most of the part, sometimes together, sometimes competing, they took over. They, they drove out the Romans in 66. They drove them out. And so then in the early 67, about the end of February, the Roman Emperor Nero, who was a very cruel person, he sent a Roman legion to take back the Jerusalem and Judea. And uh, so he went in there, and they besieged Jerusalem and, and Judea for 42 months. Now, some of you who are interested in Bible prophecy, the, the term 42 months is interesting for others. What does it matter? But anyhow, for those who know, you can figure it out. And, and in the end, they began to actually besiege and get over the wall of Jerusalem in the year 70, we believe in February that year. And they persisted. And August 4th, 70 AD, they took the city, that they took the temple in Jerusalem, it was destroyed. Remember, Jesus had predicted that. How many remember that from Matthew 24? And Jesus predicted that. They took that, so also the offering ceased. And since that time, there has not been a Jewish temple. That was the second temple. But I'm talking about the third today. And so, just again, to show you what's there, right now this is how it looks today. 
you can see that where it says Dome of the Rock. That was built as it stands now in the year two, 1023. So it's over 1,000 years old, that mosque. The Al-Aqsa Mosque was built in the year 705. So it's, uh, it's uh, much older than the first one. And Muslims believe that Muhammad went to a, for a nightly visit to heaven from that. And then you have the Western Wall. And where was the Holy of Holies? Well, most believe it was just a little bit to the left of the Dome of the Rock. You can see a little, uh, like a little tomb looking, uh, or, you know, rounded uh, ceiling there. It's called the Dome of the Spirits. They believe it was somewhere there. Now today, if you go as a tourist, you are not allowed to enter the Dome of the Rock. I, when I first went to Israel, I entered there. That is built on Mount Moriah. You can literally go in there, and I walked around there several times in that, in that octagon, and you can see this huge mountain sticking up. That's Mount Moriah. That's where we believe that Abraham, uh, you know, brought his son to be sacrificed. And so the Muslims built their mosque there. And so it's a very, very holy site. And you can just stand and look at that. And that's why we believe that many of the animal sacrifices during the time of the Jewish religion were carried out uh, for the atonement of the sins of the people. And so now there's a dream about a third temple. There are three categories of people in the world today that are hoping for dreaming of a third temple to be built on this very place. And first of all, it's Orthodox Jews. And you certainly can sympathize with that. Our Orthodox Jewish friends, they believe that God's presence was in the temple. So why wouldn't they want that rebuilt? It's very natural. Also, some say one-third, some say even half of all the laws of ordinances of, of Moses, which I think was 613 or 630, I forget for the moment, that they pertain to the temple. So there's no way for them to follow the ordinances of the law without having a temple. So naturally, this was the place where they received forgiveness of sin. This was the place of blessing and direction. So certainly anyone with even a little bit of heart would have complete sympathy and understanding that, because it's not all Jewish friends, but the Orthodox particularly are really working for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And you understand that because they really don't have a place where to exercise their religion. And so in Jerusalem, I've been there many times, there's a place called the Temple Institute where they are preparing for this. It's a small place, not very far from the Temple Mount. I've been there many times, gone through and seen it. And, and uh, some people find that very interesting. And so they have all kinds of displays there. I'll show you one picture. One, this is showing some of the trumpets and, and the instruments that would be in the temple. And there are others that show the different utensils for sacrifice. I just put one for an example there. And they are particularly interested in studying about the sacrifices that would be carried out in the temple. So from time to time, you hear a news report, especially on some uh, Christian blog, maybe, or a Jewish blog, about the red heifer. You know, the red heifer, there's a, a, a Jewish rabbi checking if this is a qualified red heifer. And so you know that the red heifer was sacrificed for the sins of the people. And so they are trying to breed a red heifer. There have been several announcements of a red heifer. Um, uh, and then later on, often it was disqualified. It wasn't quite as perfect as the red heifer should be. And so this is uh, what they are working on. They, they want... And so, again, for my Jewish friends and my Orthodox friends, I totally understand this. What I don't understand, and it'll be clear later, is why this is announced on Christian websites and blogs. I mean, I read about from time to time on different Christian websites, oh, the red heifer has been there. They've been breeding a red heifer and they found one. And people say, oh, that's halal, that's spiritual significant. Oh, that's powerful. Why is that powerful? That is, as I will show later on, that is blasphemous of Jesus Christ. There's only one reason for that red heifer being, being uh, bred. And that is that that red heifer would be killed and its blood would be shed for the remission of your sins. Now, I understand people of all religions, including Jewish people who want to sacrifice animals. I don't understand born-again, spirit-filled Christians who think it's wonderful that we're going back to animal sacrifices. In fact, I think people who go down that vein are in some danger. 
It's about the most dangerous thing you can get involved with, according to the book of Hebrews. More about that later. So I hope I make it clear. I love the Jewish people. I, I see exactly their hunger for the temple. Now, there's a second group that want to rebuild the third temple, and that is the globalists. Globalists. There are people who believe in the syncretism of all religions, and they see the three monotheistic religions they describe as Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And so they say, there's already two mosques there. Why don't we make the Temple Mount a world heritage site? And you can build a Jewish temple there, and you could also build a Christian cathedral, and everybody will be happy. We can all go to the Temple Mount, and we all have our own building. Now, naturally, the Jewish people don't like that, and the Muslim people sure don't like that, and maybe some Christians like it and some don't, all right? But there, there are people who think this would be a tremendous thing for world peace. Now, lately, in the last few years, there have been some votes that was recently won by the UNESCO, which is uh, uh, under United Nations, that actually made a decree, which I think is horrible, that kind of indicated that the Temple Mount should not be considered at all attached to the Jewish people, which is really ridiculous. That's very anti-Semitic. I'm a supporter of the nation of Israel, and so it's like saying that, that Egypt has nothing to do with the pyramids. It's like saying like the city of Niagara Falls has nothing to do with Niagara Falls. Of course, this is ridiculous. Uh, but, but, but looking over, with the exception of those things, this has been a globalist dream. Then there's a third group that really want to see a third temple built, and that is some. Operative word is some uh, 20th century, notice not 19th century, 20th century evangelicals. They are a minority, but they are significant because every person is significant. And they believe a third temple must be built up because it fits within their view of a future Christian eschatology that demands a third temple to be built because there's an antichrist coming who will be a leader for a transnational alliance, something like United Nations or similar, and that this particular political leader will be involved in a global war, and there will be a peace treaty that favors the Jewish people, and then this leader uh, will then declare himself to be Messiah, even God, and demand worship. And so many people feel that we must have a third temple because that's kind of helping out the end times to unfold. And so they have, in that sense, merged with the Temple Institute. So many spiritual Christians support the Temple Institute to help this out. And they rarely tell you, and you can go to the Temple Institute's own website, they will tell it very clearly, it is for the purpose of reestablishing animal sacrifices. And so they are supporting uh, these spirit-filled Christians, maybe some of you, I don't know, supporting this, that we need to have other sacrifices than Jesus Christ, and let's, uh, let's take an offering for that. Some Christians famously want Texas, well, there's been several Texas millionaires, I don't know why they all come from Texas, but anyhow, uh, who, who was trying to find out where to find oil in the Middle East. I think his name was Harold Stevens, and he was drilling for oil until he went bankrupt. There's another guy now doing the same thing, actually has a company, I think it is at least an over-the-counter stock, uh, a pig slip stock, or it, maybe it's on NASDAQ even, who is drilling for oil, and, and the purpose of finding oil there is to use that to, to build the temple. And, and, and so there, there's a strong effort. All right. So, so far, so good. Nobody really disputes anything I've said. I'm sure everybody can say in agreement I've given a general description. Now, I'm going to get into asking this question. Does Jesus' Christ's return hinge on the third temple in Jerusalem? Now, there are three scriptures that are most commonly the three, well, actually two of them, but I've included a third for good measure, that are preached as proof that we must have a third temple before Christ's return. And so I'm going to go to those three scriptures. The first one is from Daniel, but let me introduce it. You know, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel has a lot of dreams. I don't mean the kind of dreams you get from eating too much lasagna. He has a lot of dreams. And, and among them, the guy, Angel Gabriel, comes to him and shows him things. And it's, Daniel says, I, Daniel, I was pale. I was stricken. I couldn't sleep. I was disturbed. And so he keeps getting these visions. And he sees particularly a vision of four great empires 
The first one is very clear, and it's very accurate. It's interesting how accurate it is. I don't have time to go into those details. He sees the Babylonian Empire, and then he sees that being replaced by the Persian Empire. Then he sees that being, being replaced by the Greek Empire. And, and if, you, if you look at the poetic language used in the dream and the prophecy, it's very interesting. It's very accurate. If you study those empires, he described them pretty good. And we believe Daniel lived just in the 6th century before Christ. And, uh, and, and so he's describing events. And then he says, after those three empires, and this follows history, there comes one that is stronger than all of them, which is the Roman Empire. But then, and, and everybody agrees on this. No difference. Anybody who teaches on these things at all would agree with what I said. And there's no difference at all there. And, and then Daniel in his dream sees a little stone, a little tiny stone comes and boom, that little stone knocks down that great empire that was so powerful and who is this and he says this is the ancient of days coming with a son of man and, and his kingdom rules over all the kingdoms and, and his name will last forever and ever so he has beautiful dreams like that but Daniel is very concerned because he's in captivity so you know the, the temple has been destroyed and desecrated it's uh, bad and so he's praying more and he's saying, God, what he's concerned about Israel primarily. He's not so much concerned about the United States and Canada and, and Belgium and Holland. He's concerned about Israel. He says, what's going to happen to them? And then Gabriel comes again. And he wants to know, what's the timing of this? You know, isn't it, I think a prophecy that tells you this and thus is going to happen 50 days from now. That, that's kind of an interesting prophecy, isn't it? Because it kind of, you kind of have a, a measuring rod. If someone says, oh, I feel something great is going to happen to you. Well, you don't know if that's in 100 years or in two days. Or, uh, but, but I like these kind of very precise prophecies. How many can say yes to that as well? And so Gabriel comes with this, and I'll read it to you. And this is the first of these three scriptures. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed to your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, uh, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision or to complete the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, every Bible scholar, wherever they come from, they agree that 70 weeks here is symbolic of 70 uh, each week represents a year, so it's 70 times 70, meaning 490 years. I put it, that's not something that anybody is disputing who teaches the Bible of, of whatever stripe or, or influence they have. And so, isn't it interesting what you see here? Finish the transgression, make an end to sin, make an atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness to complete or seal up the vision, and the prophecy, and to bring anointing to the most holy place. Doesn't that sound like a good description of Jesus Christ? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, just on looking at didn't he finish the transgression? He took our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He broke the power of sin. He brought atonement, brought in everlasting righteousness. We don't live by our own righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. Uh, we, we can see that. Okay. And so then in the next verse, same vision, you receive more of a timeline. It's broken down. And Gabriel says, I'm going to break it down this way. He says, there's seven weeks, and then there's 62 weeks. Seven weeks plus 62 weeks plus one week. Now, that makes for 490 years. But if you just count the first 69, that's 483 years. I know unless you're really sleepy, you follow my math there. And so he says, you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree. Oh, so this is the starting point. That's where you start counting. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the key. The decree. Until Messiah, the prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. So there will be 483 years. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, I want to tell you that I neglected before. When the second temple was built, 
It was built at that time by Ezra, Zerubbabel, and those people. But, you know, Herod the Great came along, and he was, of course, there when Jesus was born, and he wanted to build everything. So can you imagine that he started to expand it? So the picture I showed you of the Temple Mount uh, as it was, that was built by Herod the Great. He started 19 years before Christ to build that, and even as late as 27 A.D., when many believed that, that Jesus' ministry was starting, uh, because another little caveat, I'm giving you too much, put about everybody agrees that Jesus actually wasn't born year zero. He was born 4 B.C. And so anyhow, that's just to, to pretty well everybody agrees on that as well, with very few exceptions. And so uh, when he says it was, it had moat and, and plaza, so this is, this is going to happen. The Messiah is going to come at the time when it's expanded. And uh, so he's given a very specific timeline. It'll be a time of distress because the Jews were under oppression from the Romans. So far, what I've said so far, there's no disagreement about this. Pretty well anybody who teaches on prophecy will agree on this. Now, there'll be some disagreements, but I'll teach it and then I'll give you different options. Verse 26, then after 62 weeks, it doesn't say immediately when the 62 weeks are up the next day, but after that, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come. So there's a prince to come, and he has a people. They will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, which is very much akin to the way Jesus described it. No stone left unturned. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, so let me teach this the way that the church fathers through the centuries have taught this. They say after 483 years, after 62, 69 weeks, this period, the Messiah will come and he will be cut off. They say that's when Jesus died. He was cut off. And then after that, there is a prince to come from a people. And they say that's the Romans coming. And they're going to bring desolation and destruction of the city and the sanctuary. And that happened in its completion, 70 A.D. after Christ. Okay, follow with me so far. I want to finish the reading and then I will elaborate. Verse 27, and he, some say the he there refers to the main person described Messiah, some say the Antichrist, but I will just leave it, say he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate even until complete destruction. Now it says here, there will be a covenant made. So the, we might first think, you and I, there's a very firm covenant. Because a firm covenant is one that cannot be broken. And what is the firmest of all covenants? It's the covenant that Jesus Christ uh, purchased for us by his blood. Uh, that's, and so he made a, and he put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. So we don't need to have these whiffed offerings and peace offerings because Jesus put a stop to it. And then on the wing of that, abominations will come and make desolate unto complete destruction. So let me, let me show you now a little chart. This chart I'm going to show you is from the fourth century after Christ. Now, obviously, they didn't have all these colors in the fourth century. This was uh, actually from 350, it's dated. And like many things from that time, it's kept in the Vatican. Don't hold that against the chart, okay? <laughs> they just kind of went out and collected all the stuff. And so they thought they had it right down. They said that on such and such a day, then Artaxerxes, following the, the, the solar calendar, uh, or, or the Gregorian calendar, 458, he, 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 they count all the way, and they say from 458 to about uh, 29 AD, uh, then, then you have Jesus' baptism. And some call that the Messianic window. This is when Jesus came, the Messianic window, and then they say this, and then they teach it that the seven weeks just continued. And that's the way it would read from Daniel, it just continued on, and so Jesus, halfway through the seven weeks, was cut off. He, he, his blood was shed. He died, and then he went to, uh, uh, to heaven, the resurrection. So this is how they looked at it in the fourth century. Now, I'll give you another one a little more, more simple to see. Here is one way to say it. That is, they put it at 457, and then you have Jesus' baptism 
opening up the messianic window, and then you have seven years and about in the middle of it, based on this understanding that Jesus was actually born 4 BC. Then he was crucified, resurrected the day of Pentecost, but then they talk of the end of that window when Stephen was stoned. You say, what is so significant about that? This is how it's been taught through the centuries. Because at that time, until Stephen's stoning and the conversion of the apostle Paul, which comes just in the subsequent chapters in the book of Acts, basically the gospel was for the Jews. Even those on the day of Pentecost was mainly Jewish people in Jerusalem who come from all over the world and they had different languages and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So remember Daniel had prayed about what's going to happen to my people. His main concern was not uh, France and Germany and, and, and Africa and Australia. His concern was Israel. And so uh, this is how they taught on the 70 weeks. And uh, that, that was when the atonement was done. All right. Now, there's another t- interpretation of this that I want to give you as well. So most of you have heard a different ex- exposition of this because in the late 18th century, late 18th century, there was a different interpretation that came, unlike anything that the church fathers had taught. And later on, there was a woman in the early 19th century. She was actually a young girl, 15 years old. Her name was Margaret MacDonald. And Margaret MacDonald was from Scotland, and she gave a prophecy that she believed was from God. I'm not going to talk about that. But this 15-year-old girl gave a prophecy. Uh, and she gave a different interpretation to this. And then someone later on called Schofield, he put out the Schofield Bible. So you say, well, the Schofield Bible, what do you mean? Uh, did he write his own Bible? No, it's just a Bible like this. But he filled it with his own notes. In fact, I met his daughter many, many years ago. And she was describing to us over lunch down in Georgia where I was preaching how she had cut and pasted and typed all his notes and put them in the margin. Of course, nowadays it's done digitally, but those original Bibles, you could see it was cut and paste. So it was probably more of Schofield's explanations than it was Bible. But that took on a whole different interpretation. It became very popular. I would say without Schofield, you wouldn't have Tim LaHaye. Without Schofield, you wouldn't have, you know, all the, uh, uh, what was those movies? Uh, Anyhow, I forget what they call now. You wouldn't have a lot of that. And so I'll show you that chart. I'll show you that chart. So this is, this is then, again, we go from the decree being made. Now here it gets complicated. Because you see these Bible teachers, Bible prophecy teachers, they try to make everything fit. So if it doesn't fit, you have to squeeze it till it fits. And so while it was agreed that it was King Artaxerxes' decree to Ezra in 457. Okay, but that didn't quite measure up. Because what they teach here is that at the 69 weeks when Jesus came and he stepped out in the River Jordan, that ended it. And then you have a prophetic gap. And we are still living in that gap. So they teach that the 70th week didn't come consecutive to the 69th. Now, Daniel never said anything about this. Not in his dream. But it's, it's, it's a thought. Nothing in the Bible says this. It's a theory. And most of you have been taught that. So in other words, it's not 490 years, Dan. It could be 2,490. It could be 3,490. It could be, hey, let's make it 10,000 years. Who knows? Because what's supposed to happen is that there's supposed to be an antichrist come. And then in the middle of that or in the beginning, there's going to be a rapture. And that's going to be a seven-year period. That's how you have had it taught. And, and that's most, most have only ever heard this. So that's why I realized that these are new thoughts. But then to fit it in, because, you know, these people really count, they've got to be exact. So a lot of them changed. They said it wasn't really King Artaxerxes' decree to, to Ezra. It was his decree to Nehemiah, which was 445. But then if you count it that way, it means that the 69th week is not up till the year 39 after Christ. So that can't matter. So then they say, hey, 
we got to change the years. So then they went back to a lunar year, which some of your favorite prophets and teachers call prophetic years. So if you count prophetic years only have 360 days, and regular years have 365 or 366, you're able over a 483 year span to squeeze things so it seems to fit. This is complicated. In fact, I was talking to a prominent member of our church today who has his degree in biblical studies. And he has uh, all the end time prophecy Bibles. And he has listened to all the endless CDs about the 70 weeks of Daniel. I asked him, I said, my dear brother, can you explain what the 70 weeks are all about after your degree in biblical studies from Liberty University? After six years of following this teaching, after all the CDs and prophecy Bibles, can you just explain to me, what is Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy about? He said, I really don't know. <laughs> Which kind of proves my point. But he said, I, I had this overwhelming feeling when I was in the meeting that uh, the guy who taught, he just poured on so many facts. So who would want to dispute that? But he says, and see, the idea with the prophecy, Daniel says, I don't understand, so I want the prophecy to help me to understand. And it appears to me with all these options, the decree was this, the decree was then, it was prophetic years or regular years, and all kinds of options to make the numbers work, that even such an avid, devoted student couldn't even give me one sensible sentence. I had to explain to him what his prophets and teachers had actually tried to teach him. If you want a quick, easy answer, it gets more complicated. And so this would say then that, that this is the prophetic gap, is the church age, and then the rest of it, the 70th week, is yet to come. I will tell you this. I side with the church fathers on this. And I want to ask you three simple questions. Did God give Daniel an illogical, incomprehensible prophecy? Question number two. Did Daniel forget to include the pause? I mean, God gave it to him, but he just forgot to put that in the book between the 69th and 70th week because there's nothing in his writing that indicates this at all. Or is this something we added on to fit in something else we believe that we need to make it fit? Or, third question, is the 70 weeks a mere play with numbers? Not about 490 years at all. Is God just playing with numbers? Is that giving us understanding? So, I would say on this issue, I, we can all disagree. Jesus is Lord. You believe Jesus died as the Savior of the world, your Savior, confess Him as Lord, your Savior. But as far as what do you think about this? I, I, I can't see it. The word temple isn't even mentioned in Daniel. This is the main key scripture for a third temple being rebuilt, and the word temple isn't even in the scripture. It's not even mentioned. This is the main supporting scripture. The word temple isn't even mentioned in it. And it's only inferred because they think this desolation must happen later on. I'll explain more about it, but I want to go to the next scripture. Here's the second pillar that... Some would support. We go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, Let no one in any way deceive you, Paul says. For it, the day he's referring to, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That's a falling away. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who oppresses and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I told you these things. Paul is saying, you guys know what I'm talking about. Remember, we had a discussion about this in person. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So whatever Paul was talking about was at work. Only he who who now restrains, so that it was talking about his time, now he's restraining. He who now restrains. He's in saying that somebody who's going to restrain in the future, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. 
Then the lawless one will be revealed, that is, the one whose presence is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So, first of all, I just make the following notation that it's evident from Paul's writings here that he's discussing a matter with which the Thessalonians are familiar. And in fact, he has spoken to them about it. And for some reason, he is using obscure language, which could be many reasons. It could be that if that referred to a person that they knew he didn't want to put the Thessalonians in a bad light. So the man of lawlessness, how many have heard of the man of lawlessness? Now I tell you, there are many, many suggestions for who this man would be. Some refer to this as being antichrist. Now the word antichrist is not in this scripture. The word antichrist only appears four times in the Bible, uh, in first, the epistle of 1 John and the epistle of 2 John. It's the only time the word itself appears. I'm not saying that there aren't references to the Antichrist elsewhere, but that's the only time the word Antichrist appears. So there are different options. Who is this man of lawlessness? Now, to the early church, to all the church fathers, for the first 1,500 years of the church, there was one person who was looked upon as the man of lawlessness, and it was the emperor Nero. Now, after the Reformation came in the 1500s, you know, with Martin Luther, John Calvin, etc., then after that, the popular teaching in, in Protestant churches was that the man of lawlessness is the Pope in Rome. And I even remember as a child, because even in the, when I was in the child, when was I a child? It was a long time ago. Let's say it was 70s or some, maybe it was even in the 60s. Who knows? I don't want to mention anything. I remember hearing that talk. That was, kind of the, that was kind of the standard prophecy teaching that it was the Pope. But then in the late 70s, it changed, and the man of lawlessness became a political figure. And there have been many options. In my very, very short lifespan, I remember in the 1970s, the most popular candidate for the man of lawlessness was a man who's still alive, Dr. Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of the State because he was Jewish and he was working for America. That was a popular one, and there was all kinds of numerical combination. You could prove that he was 666 Antichrist. There was, everybody was kind of sure. It was Henry Kissinger. Then it was uh, uh, King Carlos of Spain was one of them. And then a little bit later, I'm moving forward in time. Of course, Gorbachev was a main contender. Uh, but he's kind of old now, so I don't think he's going to pull it off. But he had the mark on his forehead, as you know. And then there have been many, many others um, uh, uh, in, in more recent times. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, the United European Union. And, and then they went beyond 10 countries, so people are trying to figure that out. And then there was, uh, like, uh, Muammar Gaddafi was one. But then he, you know, he got shot. And so that doesn't work. And then we had Saddam Hussein. He was a main contender. I mean, you know, the more you can come up with, you can write books and make teaching tapes. And people like it because, frankly, let me, let me be honest with you. It's a lot more exciting to say that this man of lawlessness is some guy living around here now than to just say this happened in history. I mean, who's going to buy a book by someone to say Nero is the man of lawlessness? He's not going to sell any books. But if you say, I know the guy. Oh, he's uh, Obama. Oh, he, he, I forgot him. He's a, he's a very recent candidate for this. And, and they keep coming up because people eat too much pizza and they dream and they come up with things and so on and so forth. So the, and there are others. Some suggest that the, that the, the man of lawlessness was John of Gishkala, who actually invited 20,000 Edomite soldiers, and they helped to destroy Jerusalem, and, and they had rebelled against both the Jewish law and the Roman law. You say, some think it's symbolic. It's the carnal man versus the spiritual man. So there are many different ones here. And so, interestingly enough, this picture of someone in the temple of Jerusalem who is calling himself God and saying, worship me, is actually fulfilled at least quite twice. There was a Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes. I have a picture of him. Look at this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, about 168 before Christ. He went into Jerusalem. This is recorded in the book of the Maccabees. And he set up an idol insignia 
in the Holy of Holies. He sacrificed a pig, which is unclean to the Jewish people. And he called himself God. So that was 168. So it happened. So in that sense, there was a desolation. Then, during this Jewish war, remember I told you, 66 after they came, 67 they came, remember? For 42 months, they occupied uh, the land of Israel, Judea, and, and in Jerusalem. Who sent them? Nero. Look at the next three guys. Isn't this a nice group? The guy in the middle, that's Nero. Now, that's somebody you want to marry your daughter. Uh, look, look at his face. And, and the fellow on the right, that's Vespasian. And the fellow on the left, that's Titus. These folks are kind of important. So Nero, he was one brutal, lawless man. He killed people left, right, and center. You remember how you've heard how he took Christians and he wrapped them in tar and feather and he made them to be the, to light up his parties. He, he, he was, he killed his pregnant wife to death by kicking her. He, he was just a brutal man. So certainly he would fulfill the requirement for someone lawless. So then when this uprising happened, Nero sent Vespasian, this guy. Now he's kind of cute. Come on now. There, there's something to consider. Vespasian, who was a great general, and, and he went to lead the attack. And he brought with him his son. Notice the resemblance. Titus is Vespasian's son. And so he went in and Titus was second in command. But then in 68 AD, uh, Nero died. And there was a bunch of tribes that tried to follow Nero, but eventually they called back Vespasian. So he had to leave Israel, where he was commanding several Roman legions, go back, and he was crowned the emperor. And then Titus is therefore the one who actually brought about the destruction of Jerusalem. All of these had been termed the man of lawlessness, and they're in the same era. And then later on, Titus had he became an emperor too, but that doesn't matter to our story here and to what we're talking about. So now I want to read to you. This guy Titus, he did the same thing. He mimicked Antiochus Epiphanes. And he went into the temple. He, he brought Roman gods and idols. He called himself God, called himself Messiah. He sacrificed a pig. And I'm quoting here Josephus, the Jewish historian. He writes about Titus. He set himself up in the temple, displaying himself as God. The Romans brought their ensigns to the temple and set them over by the eastern gates. And there they offered sacrifices. So you can see he actually did this. Desolation, this, this thing. This is his historical record. Now, what about this, the miracles and false wonders of Satan? Well, the fellow on the right, when he came near Jerusalem, three Roman historians record that he presented himself as a healer. And so there's a record of him healing a blind person by spitting in mud, putting it on his eyes, healing a lame person, uh, by stepping on that person's, I think it was his leg, and healing a man with a withered hand. That does sound like a, 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 of trying to fake a miracle that was attributed to Jesus. So there was all this going on. So there was one of these in this lawless group that did signs and wonders. And it said here, they will be signs and wonders of the devil. So I'm saying in that sense, whether it's going to happen again or not, it sure did happen. And during this period, there was this apostasy. He says, you know, the apostasy has to happen. And he says, he who restrains has to be removed. Now, what did the early church say that he who restrains is? You know, today they say, well, it's the church or the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is ever present, so it's hard to remove the Holy Spirit. But anyhow, and if the church is to be removed, I just submit to you that it says after that then, according to that thinking, that there's going to be a number that no man can number who's going to come to Christ. So, so why, didn't, why were we here in the first place if we're going to do so poorly that, that the big revival is going to happen after we're gone? It's kind of a sad testimony to the church. And I don't know why we even got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's another point. So I, I'm saying here to you that, that these, and Paul is saying, you know this. We talked about this. Why wouldn't Paul, if this was true, say, Nero is the lawless one. Why wouldn't he say that? For obvious reasons. If you were writing a letter to Christians in North Korea today, would you write in the letter, I pray that Kim Jong-un will be removed because I know he's killing. You wouldn't say that 
because you would jeopardize the life of the Christians who received your letter. The people who would read it would say, you're in cahoots with foreigners. That is so of course, Paul is using obscure language, but, he, but we know that they knew about it. So if Henry Kissinger is the lawless one, the Thessalonians know, knew about that 2,000 years ago. Because he says, you know, we talked about this. You, you know about this. So he seems to be describing a situation where they, are, they, they know about. He also says the temple of God. He will sit in the temple of God. Now, what would that have meant to the Thessalonians? It would have meant the temple in Jerusalem. It would be very hard to think that that refers to a future temple since in our first three introductory verses we said, Paul said it, Peter said it, and Stephen said it, God no longer lives in a temple made by human hands. Since God no longer lives in a temple made by human hands, how could then the same Paul says that there's a temple of God unless he's referring to the temple where God's presence had dwelt, the Jewish temple. And then he was, who was he who restrains? Well, the church fathers had an explanation. Actually, the high priest at that time, very interesting person. They even had people who were the witnesses and everything. I, I don't have time to go into that because I'm talking about the third temple, but you read history. They were there. And the one who restrained many believe was the Jewish high priest who really tried to uh, appease the Romans. He was trying to hinder this rebellion from starting because he was trying to avoid bloodshed. So he was restraining Nero by various means and then he was killed. So he was removed. And then it came into full bloom. I'm submitting it to you. Believe whatever you want. But the, those are interesting thoughts. So the word temple of God appears once in that text. Now let me go to the third one. Now Revelation 11 verse 1 and 2 says, There was given me a measuring rod like a, sta like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God. Temple of God. And the altar. And those who worship in it. So measure the worshipers. Which could lead one to think it is a symbolic measurement. Because it wouldn't be, well, Dean Morris is 5'11", Tyna is 5'9 or 10. You know, it could at least open the door that it's symbolic measurement, and often a measurement is talked about measuring our spiritual life, and it would be up against the finished work of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. And so, but, but let me keep reading. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, leave the, uh, the outer court, which is outside the temple, and don't measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There's the 42 months again. And it comes several times. So, it could be. Now, you know, sometimes it's better not to know too much. I thank God that I, when I started this Christian walk, I didn't know too much. I didn't know that good people have disagreed throughout history. Did you know that? And you know, those early Christians, some of them, not the real early ones, but the kind of the ones that came in the 4th, 5th century, they killed one another over nothing. I mean, if you didn't believe exactly like them, cut his tongue out, send him to jail. I mean, they were mean. I'm glad you're not like that. I mean, they have what they call anathemas. And if somebody doesn't agree exactly, anathema that person, to hell with you. Basically, that's what it means, to hell with you. And it could be such small differences that today we would just say, what was wrong with those people? But now, I'm a little bit more free nowadays. I said, if you believe Jesus is Lord, we are on the same team. I am just introducing some thoughts to you. And so, again here, is this referring to a literal temple? Some people have believed, reasonable people, people who love Jesus, believe that maybe this was written before the destruction of the temple. I mean, I, that shocked me to the core when I heard that. I said, I've always said, and I preached that this was written 95 after Christ, and now I find out that some people in history who were very reasonable and we believe in many areas... You know, I mean, it's interesting to me. Some of you come from the reform background, and sometimes I say not so nice things about John Calvin because I agree with, disagree with some of his teaching. But I want to say something nice today. You know, uh, John Calvin, he, he wrote a commentary of every book in the whole Bible except for the book of Revelation. Every book. He said, well, why is that? Well, because some of those people, including Martin Luther, they don't even know if this would be in the Bible. 
They said it openly. So there was all kinds of discussion. That went on for 1,500 years. Some of you, oh my goodness, what are you talking about? Well, I, I'm just saying that reasonable people, people who we admire, who get revelation of salvation by grace. And Eusebius in the fourth century, who's the famous church historian, he actually says, well, half the members of the council, they thought it should be in and half thought it should be out. So anyhow, but I'm saying to you to make this, and there are 13 other references. By the way, there are 13 other references to the temple of God in the book of Revelation. And all those other 13, without a doubt, is about the temple in heaven. This is the only one that could be about a physical temple. All the other ones, if you read the context, is about the temple in heaven with the 24 elders. So these are the scriptures. And they're certainly worthy of consideration. I want to say I tend to more agree with those early Christians and, and, and those in the first couple of centuries, I'm a little bit more that way, many of you, and I didn't use to because I never heard this. And, and so now I want to make five quick points here. Why I'm teaching this. What difference does it make? First of all, I want to bring in Jesus. How many think it's good to bring in Jesus? Yes, Jesus declares that the temple is desolate. In Matthew 23, 38, Jesus says, behold, your house being temple is being left to you desolate. This would have been a good time for Jesus to say, well, it's being left desolate, but you know, you hold on. In the end time, it's going to be rebuilt again. Would have been a good time. But there's never a record other than these obscure interpretations of Daniel and the pause that Daniel doesn't mention. And this other one, that there's no mention. There's no direct mention ever by Jesus, by the apostles, by anyone. And Jesus just says here, the temple is going to be left desolate. And that would make sense. What do we need it for anyhow? We don't need any more sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifices once for all. So I have no problem. There's nothing complicated in that. Then Jesus also said, John 2, 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So they remember that, oh yeah, the temple is Jesus' body and he's the head. No wonder they got all that teaching about the body of Christ. That's the temple. So, so I would say that that's why if you want to know about Israel, the third temple and Jesus' return, I think the third temple has squat nothing to do with it at all. I believe Jesus is coming back, but there's no third temple that has anything to do with it whatsoever. Number two, the testimony of Paul, Stephen, and Simon Peter. I started with that. They gave clear testimony that God doesn't live in a temple made with hands. That plainly means that you must not think of a certain geographical location that God's presence will be stronger or better or more dominant there than anywhere else. He doesn't live. And that made them so mad. You know, when they heard Stephen say that, they began to throw the stones at them. And some Christians still who hear what I'm teaching right now, they don't throw stones at me. They'll just send nasty emails and they'll say bad things about me on Facebook instead. But if they, if they could get away with it, who knows what they would do. They might bring in the Smith, bring out the Smith and Wesson. I don't know. But, but they can't get away with it today. So it was, was Paul wrong? Was Stephen confused? Okay. Number three, and I'm following up, God doesn't live in a temple made by hands. It's not in theology. It's not in history. It's not in scripture. There's no clear statement. It, it, what we have is inventive interpretations and, and different techniques of interpreting and switching up dates and years complicated theories, and the 70 weeks prophecy interpretation that you're so familiar with was rejected by, let me just give you some of the notables from the second and third century, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, Cyril of Alexandria, Augustine, and others. None of them. Maybe your favorite prophecy teaches things differently, but none of those, some of them who were trained 
uh, directly by the apostles talk like that. So I'll give you a couple of more verses. Ephesians 2.20, Jesus Christ being himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. People, people, believers are the building blocks of God's temple. Believers grow into a holy temple. It's not a truckload of brick. It's people who are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.13, do you not know that you are the temple of God? 2 Corinthians 6.16, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. Revelation, here it comes. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. People, not marble, not gold, not bricks. People are pillars in God's temple. I submit that the third temple idea is a blasphemy of Jesus Christ. And born-again believers, be careful. Jesus warned that the deception would come to Israel in the last days or at some point. We need to be careful that we are not a part of the deception. That we, spirit-filled, born-again Christians, that we are not propagators of the deception, that we are not the ones who deceive the people of Israel. What are they to think? If we support their research for the red heifer, are we the, are we the end-time fulfillment of Jesus' warning of deceptions? Are we seduced? And by our seduction, we're seducing Israel. You see, there's, there's different branches. There is, there is replacement theology. There are people who say Israel doesn't matter anymore. It's just the church. Then there's Christian Zionism that are interested just in the land and all that. We are not replacement theology. We are not Christian Zionists. Well, you say, what are you then, Pastor Peter? We are one new man in Christ Jesus. The wall of partition has been broken down. So, so you can't say, oh, he's a replacement theology. No, 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 no. We, don't, we, we, we reject that. That's cruel. We love Israel. We support Israel. I think it's a wonderful country. I'm happy that Israel is doing so well. We also not called to Christian Zionism. We are called to preach whoever you are, Jew or Gentile, the wall of partition, the commandments have been torn down, the handwritings have been nailed to the cross, and we preach there is one new man in Christ Jesus. Neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Gentile, but we're all one in Jesus Christ. These are the things that the book of Hebrews warns against. Let me give you some of the, of the warnings. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we neglect that he put away the sacrifices by one sacrifice, how shall we escape? Another expression from the book of Hebrews, crucify the Son of God afresh. This is spoken in this context. Another one, trample the blood of the new covenant under our feet. This is a warning, don't do this. This is the worst thing you can do, to trample the blood of the new covenant under our feet. Now, I understand when people of different religions who don't know the gospel, they make sacrifices. It happens in Hinduism, happens in Buddhism. Orthodox Jews want to do it. I understand. I don't have one word of condemnation to them at all. But I'm speaking to fellow believers. If we who have declared and take the Lord's table, if we suddenly start saying, no, let's support going back to animal sacrifices, are we not trampling the blood of the new covenant under our feet? You know, every year before Passover, before our Easter, before the Jewish Passover, Jerusalem Post or some other publication puts out a picture like this. Sometimes it's a Christian Sometimes it's Jewish people, as in this picture, who are trying to go to the Temple Mount to sacrifice a lamb. I understand. I understand the Jewish people in the picture. They want so desperately to have forgiveness for sin. What I don't understand is when I look in Christian publications and, and the writers, oh, this is so exciting. 
This is so thrilling. Did you hear? Oh, there was somebody caught at the Temple Mount. They wanted to sacrifice a lamb. Oh, 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 oh this is really something. Oh, that be, oh, oh, this is the end time. What are you talking about? You are blaspheming Jesus Christ. A good friend of mine published it this year. You know, I don't want to say things on Facebook because I just said, have you lost the Christian? Have, have you departed from the Christian faith? This is a man in the healing ministry. He believes in the gifts of the Spirit. Wonderful friend for many years. I felt like, what, what, I don't know how to, how do I say this? Well, like, 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 you think that's wonderful? That we are sacrificing lambs? Like this is, this is some great thing for us to be thrilled about? Rather, it's an indictment. Why haven't you preached the gospel? Why haven't you let the gospel go out so that people know? that they don't need to make any animal sacrifices anymore. That's why I say, I wonder what kind of teaching are born again spiritual Christians receiving when they think such a thing is a wonderful thing. Now, some have said, well, you know, when the third temple is built, we, we don't really, you know, we, we, we support the Temple Institute, you know, but, and, and, but they never want to say it's about the animal sacrifices, but you read their own website, then it is. So it's going to be some memorial thing, like, like the communion or something. Well, you can come up with ideas. It's not in the Bible. You, you can come up with all kinds of things to, to explain yourself, but I like to be true to the Bible. And so finally, why am I addressing this? The third temple idea distracts from the real issue. There is nothing new under the sun. Jesus standing there with the disciples, he says, after the Holy Spirit can come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me. And say, you know, we don't know about that. I don't want to hear about that. I don't hear about that. Well, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? See, see, they're just like people today, distracted. And another thought that I don't have time to cover is that foolish idea about 144,000 evangelists who are going to evangelize the world in the last days. I mean, my, my, one of the people I admire so much, the founder of People's Church here in Toronto, Oswald J. Smith, I like to quote him so you don't blame me all the time. You can blame him. He's dead now, and he's a respected evangelical leader in Canadian history. He said there's hardly anything that can dullen the nerve of world evangelism more than the idea that some future elite troops are going to carry out the gospel. Jesus never said that. He said, go ye. Amen. So I'm concerned about that. People get caught up in this. That's why I'm teaching about it. People get caught up in this and think, oh, this is great. No, it's not great. Let's beware that we are not a part of a deception. Will the third temple be built? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe the globalists will succeed. Maybe they'll make it happen. Maybe the Orthodox Jews will have their way. Maybe, who knows? I don't know. But it makes no difference whatsoever. Makes none whatsoever. May happen, may not. I don't think it will personally. I don't think it will. But it could. That's not where I stand. It is of no relevance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christ will return. And we will meet him in the air.